You're listening to The Turing Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Welcome to the very first edition of The Turing Podcast being recorded remotely in the midst of a lockdown. Um, I'm here with uh, Effie. Hello, Effie. Hi, Ed. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? How are you doing over there in in, in Hackney? Are you, are you staying safe? Uh, as always, and more importantly, staying indoors. <laughs> yeah, that's a disclaimer at the start of the episode. Everyone, please stay indoors. I should say as well, we're recording this on Friday, the twenty seventh of March. Um, so this will be a COVID nineteen special, but any information that we have relevant to what's going on, you know, maybe slightly out of date, depending on when we release this. Um, but today we're going to be speaking with John uh, Crowcroft, uh, a Turing Institute fellow and professor of communications systems in the computer laboratory at the University of Cambridge. Uh, hello, John. Hi there. Um, how how are you doing? How are you uh, surviving the lockdown so far? Uh, is everything okay with you? I'm okay, but um, I have builders in the house. Um, I'm three floors up to keep away from them, and they're keeping away from me. And I have no kitchen because they built and started building us a new kitchen uh, a few months ago, but they haven't put in the cooker and the sink yet. So they're trying to finish before they get told to not go out anymore. Oh, right. Okay. So builders are still working at the moment as of Friday 27th. That's interesting. As of, yeah, well, they're allowed to because they're uh, working more than five metres apart from each other and they're self-employed and they haven't got any money otherwise. So, Right, right. Okay. Um, well, that uh, sounds like a bit of an inconvenience for you, but maybe in the long run, it's a good thing, is it? Did you say that was your, your kitchen being sorted at the moment? Yeah, it's the whole ground floor. <laughs> right. Goodness, that's that's quite intense, John. Um, and do you expect that they'll finish soon? Um, yeah, they're literally putting the, the the cooker and sink in. We've just gone in mostly today, so hopefully that will all be okay for them. They can go home and avoid us now. Okay. Well, we avoid them. I'm three floors away, actually. Okay, so uh, nice and quarantined then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, at least you're a, a social distance from them, at least. So there you go. Oh yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, um, we were really keen to speak to you because, um, you know, it's, it's been a crazy few weeks, I think, for everybody across the world. Um, but we were keen to speak to you because uh, we know, um, uh, I'm not sure if we mentioned it at the top of the show, we should have, um, but you're also the researcher at large at the Turing. Is, uh, is yep. that right? Yep. That's my fun title. It's name. I chose that after Paddington at Large, which is the second volume of the book, The Paddington Bear. If you've seen the films, if you haven't seen the films, get them out immediately on Netflix and show the kids. They're the funniest films for anyone up to the age of 100. Great. Okay, I'll add it to the list immediately. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I've, seen, I've seen both films. Uh, they were they were quite enjoyable, yes. <laughs> they were good fun. Great was stuff. The research, researcher at large, is, is that not... Uh, sorry, I, I assumed that was just a sort of, uh, sort of jokey title, but does it have some kind of uh, um, underlying meaning? Yeah, the goal is to help uh, the director uh, figure out how there are, um, there are information parts in the Turing that work, a lot of them, and uh, in the original structures and things we've evolved. 
but there are other ones where there may be gaps or there are things that are changing under our feet. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm a sort of extra hand for the director to run around looking at how we can join things up, uh, you know, join the dots better. Right. I'm guessing at the moment that um, there's a lot of joining up to be do- to be done. Uh, I have heard some rumours that we may have some uh, coronavirus related projects in the pipeline. So is that is that something that's uh, on your radar at the moment? Yeah, there's there's a quite a lot of things going on. So not just obviously the university partners uh, uh, have their own things going on. Uh, so I know of the amazing project in Oxford, uh, which is building uh, designs for ventilators out of uh, gadgets you can find lying around in most machine shops. So you don't have to retool; you just use existing stuff. The thing called OxyVent, so they don't have to, re- you know, redesign a car production line. They can do this super low cost, but still within the uh, legal and safe medical standards. And then there are a number of projects which are building mobile phone apps. Uh, for tracing things. So King's College London with St. Thomas and Guy's Hospital has built a very cool app for the NHS, uh, which allows people to self-report symptoms. And then the Turing, direct, more directly, the Turing has a couple of things in the pipeline. They're not really public yet because they're kind of, uh, they're really things that have to work right now with people uh, in the NHS. So we don't want to confuse anyone with you know talking about the details uh, but by the time this goes out there might be they might all be public um they're um they're really on the kind of uh you know, critical path but if you do something extra on the critical path that slows down doctors and nurses then you won't be welcome right now so you have to do course, things yes. super sensitively so all the other things i talked about like building tracing apps that track things uh, um i had a long conversation with nhsx which is you know the tech wing of the nhs about uh, how to make those uh, privacy sensitive so they don't broadcast where everyone is all the time uh, and they don't broadcast your uh, positive or negative status uh, before or after tests and so on um, but it's um so we've got had a long discussion about how those things could work uh in now well, it's, it's and- interesting um you mentioned the uh the app developed by king's college london and partners because i was going to ask you about that actually um the symptoms tracker app um I, I've been using that, so I think um, people are they're encouraging people, um, regardless of whether they've got symptoms or not, to use it. Um, what can you tell us about that? Is that something you know about? Um, yeah, well, so most of these apps don't, as I say, they don't broadcast information to all and sundry. Um, they're collecting information. So firstly, there's a kind of heat map of what's going on. So that allows uh, people planning resources in the NHS to look at where they might uh, need resources sooner. Um, they also give you uh, a, a approximate way of figuring out the parameters of the epidemic. So there are a number of parameters which are not well known. So you have this susceptibility, infectiousness, and recovery rates, but they're not the same across every uh, uh, age group, gender, and so on in the population. Uh, so we know, for example, that children are way less susceptible. Uh, if they do get infected, they have way lower symptoms, and they may not be as infectious, but it's not known what that rate is. Um, and similarly with recovery, we, we, we're fairly certain you recover, you have immunity, and you can detect the, uh, you know, the, the, the fact you've got that immunity. Uh, we don't know how long it lasts. So apps that allow people to report that will give epidemiologists an idea of those parameters, which are, uh, you know, nice models that one can work with 
um, that, that, you know, you could, again, you can use those to say, okay, in the long run, what are we going to do about our resources uh, for, for public health? I think this is a, a crucial point that you're making here, which is that at the moment, um, nobody globally knows uh, how many people have caught the virus and are asymptomatic. Um, so is is there something that people can do um, to help track that um, at all? Yeah, um, the, the best thing is lots more testing. Um, so mm -hmm. there was one town in Italy where the mayor decided to spend money and buy tests for the entire population of the town. And that's the best source we have for the numbers of asymptomatic carriers. Um, and it was fairly significant um, that, that, you know, the number of people they found that tested positive but had no idea they had anything. But then the second step, which is more subtle and complicated, is how do you know how infectious those people are? If you're asymptomatic, then you, you don't have a temperature. You also don't cough. And if you don't cough, you're not spreading the virus anywhere near as fast because you're not emitting it from your lungs, which is where it's living. So, it, But it's not clear what, how that changes the rate of infection from those different subgroups of the population. So, so there are two different parts to that. And, and, and then there's another part that I mentioned, which is the difference between age groups. So if younger people are more immune or they get it, but they simply don't get the symptoms for some reason, and as yet somewhat unknown, then how does that impact on their infectiousness? Uh, and we don't even know what the recovery rates are. You know, do people uh, stay infected for, you know, for one, two, six weeks? Who knows? For different groups with different symptom levels. And then there's, um, so all these things involve lots of data science, you know, but they, you, you need to do both self-reported symptoms Perhaps tracing contacts, uh, which needs to be sensitive to privacy, so you, that data needs to be anonymized, but still could be used, you know, carefully for informing people. Maybe they need to go check, get tested. And then the last thing, a really crucial thing, is lots and lots and lots of testing, um, which uh, is in, in hand, but could have been done a lot sooner. Uh, the the model for public health reaction was South Korea, and definitely, you know, far and away the best. Uh, they had roughly the same start point for the epidemic as. Um, as Italy, but they've really kept the numbers way down. Uh, Singapore has a very cool contact tracing app as well, which is somewhat similar to the um, uh, King's College one, but but actually slightly more intrusive, but still doesn't reveal too much about you know, who's got what, but it allows pe people in the public health to contact somebody who may have met an infected person and say, you know, maybe you want to check, you know, go home, wait to see if you get a fever and if you do you know call us up and we'll send around a tester um uh, with you know biohazard suits on so all this stuff needs to be linked up in you know quite a big joined up picture which a few countries did quite early and the uk is kind of in the middle and then there are places that are way too slow uh, so, uh, sorry, John, I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on the um, South Korean response um, in relation to COVID-19. Uh, obviously, as you say, they were able to limit the rate of infection very quickly and seem to have got a handle on, on the situation so much um, earlier. Um, thinking about it from a data scientist perspective, how can we learn from that experience and how quickly can we implement similar strategies in the UK um, to ensure that we're sort of taking ourselves away from that middle ground? So it's difficult at, th at this point in UK because what they did in Korea, um, South Korea, they did two two things that uh, we weren't prepared for. One was that they'd had previous experience of SARS and MERS, and so they actually had a whole bunch of testing gear ready to roll out. So you can roll out swabs and use PCR equipment for, for, for analyzing what you get back, and they had that at scale already. Um, 
The other thing they did was this measurement um, of what was what contacts people had, but they were doing something also that, that the UK would have found uh, a little bit difficult because they were more intrusive than we would probably like. They actually looked at people using cash points to see where they were. They looked at people using taxis and paying. Um, you know, so they used every source. And it's a nice example of data science because it's data fusion from multiple sources. Um, but I think we might feel a little bit uncomfortable with that amount of, of uh, personal data being used. Um, it's not clear it's currently illegal. It would be normally against GDPR and, and some other laws, but the uh, Information Commission Office has actually relaxed that at the moment. But it probably is sort of beyond what, what you could uh, uh, successfully get the public to accept. It's nowhere near as far as what the Chinese did, but then they had to react even more because they already had a huge epidemic. So they did something much more intrusive. So then the, the other extremes, so one extreme is the most intrusive was China, the middle ground is South Korea, um, and then on the, the least intrusive, but very successful as well was Singapore. And, and I think that's sort of where we live in measuring contacts. The Singapore app for tracing contacts is, is pretty decent in terms of privacy. It doesn't go look at all the other things you do, and it turns out to be extremely successful at essentially tracking down you. Once you test somebody's positive, uh, you track down all their contacts very, very quickly. And you need to do that quickly once you have a, a low enough number for that to be possible. You know, if you have too many, that you know, too many people in the population infected, then the rate of new infections is so high, there's no way. Um, so there's a paper from folks at Imperial which gives the numbers of there are lots of people who can do this analysis. So once the spreading rate goes above a certain point, you know, it's, it's an exponentiating process. So you just can't track down all those people. You don't have enough people to talk to the, the, the infected people. But if you can get the thing down to that, then we need to go revisit what those folks did. So having the apps and having the testing are really things for, you know, three, four weeks from now when hopefully we've got through the, the bulk of the current peak, uh, we'll still have maybe 70, 80% of the population will still be, uh, potentially, you know, susceptible. Um, right. So you want to protect them from a reboot of the whole thing. Right. So with regards to these sort of contract uh, contact tracing uh, technologies, including the mobile phone apps that some of these countries have deployed, um, and you also mentioned data coming from cash points and things like that. Um, yeah, you mentioned some of the privacy concerns, but what about the challenges associated with um, the data itself and how reliable it is. Um, can you speak to that, you know, that aspect of it? Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's an interesting point. I mean, when we did this in eleven or twelve years ago with the flu epidemic, um, we used a local Bluetooth radio, like your Bluetooth headset, and that can measure meter level accuracy. And then you assume that somebody staying within a couple of meters of somebody for 15 minutes is likely to be infected then you go back around the loop and you look at when somebody is infected you trace their contacts you see who's infected you go back to your data and you can then work out what the the um, whether the proximity is a good proxy for infection um, and so you can you can essentially calibrate the system as it runs and i think it would be great to talk to the folks from uh from Singapore and see if they've gone back around that loop again, because that would tell us if that way of monitoring proximity is a good proxy or how good a proxy it is, or how long you need to establish somebody's, you know, in contact with somebody. The, um, the other thing people have looked at is sort of more coarse grain data from the, from the mobile phone companies, but that doesn't tell you if somebody's next to somebody. Um, 
You could try and use uh, kind of location services like Google and Apple have on Android and you know iOS phones and tablets. Again, that's unlikely to be super accurate. It doesn't give you meter level accuracy, but it's it's better than the mobile phone. Uh, you know, within a one cell, which is a hundred meters or tens of meters at best. Um, uh, so, so there's a kind of range of things, but they all have to be uh, calibrated against ground truth, and you need to have accurate testing of a large population to do that. You should also, going back to one of your earlier questions, really, we should be doing a lot of random tests. We should be doing careful random testing, choose a fairly large group of randomly selected people across the geography of the UK, uh, and you know, probably a few thousand, um, picked at random, not from people you sus- systematically suspect of being infected, because that will uh, be the only way we'll really understand the, the distribution uh, you know, uh, that, that, that we actually have. I think based on what I heard on the news the other day, that may be something that's taking place actually, or I'm not hundred percent sure because I yeah. know that obviously the tests are certainly limited at this stage and that certainly there's a lot to talk about prioritizing them for the key workers first, but that there may also be some in reserve for, yeah, this sort of random sample of the population uh, approach. Uh, I think something- the, yeah, the two different tests though, that there's the, um, there's a test for right, you know, whether yeah. somebody has the virus and the test for whether they have the antibodies. And I think you could mix and match that quite easily. I also, I'm not quite sure I understand why it's been so slow to get these tests out. I mean, there's a company in, you know, there's two people in two organizations in Belfast that make these tests in numbers and have sold them to other countries. So I think there's a logistical problem with um, the way the government interfaces to the health service of public health and other organizations. And I, my, my personal take on this is political. I just think we don't have enough engineers and scientists in government at the political policy level um, who, who understand this. And we don't have enough business-related people who actually ever run a large-scale business. You know, I, I take somebody who'd run a large trucking company, uh, somebody, you know, big transport system, logistics, you know, shipping things to supermarkets, uh, and uh, a few people that understood, you know, doing uh, statistics to predict how many goods we need somewhere, the people that did the machine learning at Amazon to do the... Um, you know, predicting how many of something they need in a in a warehouse when they see a in- small increase in a popularity of something that they're selling. Uh, you know, those kind of folks uh, are who you need. That sort of mix of physical world, uh, logistics, people that deliver a lot of stuff, people that understand how to gear up factories to make a lot of stuff very quickly, uh, and then people that understand how to analyze the numbers to join them up. So you can do the Amazon fulfillment algorithm would be exactly what you need for this. Um, and we had a talk at the Turing from the from the folks at Amazon that designed that about three years ago. Uh, you know, this is not secret. Right. Uh, it, it's fairly I know well there's, there's been some talk about Amazon uh, de- uh, delivering the the testing kits as well. I, I don't know how long um, along that decision process we are, but um, it certainly makes sense. I mean, you know, they're they're obviously going to be the experts in this kind of logistics. So why? reinvent the wheel especially in a time of crisis you know if you can use them then absolutely should, that's what should be happening um yeah exactly I'm gonna, yeah i'm gonna ask you a, a another question which is um related to something you were saying earlier um about the efforts in different countries um so with regard to data science research communities uh, in particular uh, both nationally and internationally um 
is there some chance that sort of the initiative the initiatives uh, to track spread and record data um, will have some overlap so people will be developing different apps at the same time um, and it's it's not like one of those apps is going to be uh, uptake uptaken by the, the population more than others because there are too many different initiatives going on at the same time or do you think that actually there's quite good coordination at the moment and um, you know not too much reinventing the wheel or, or duplication of efforts how, how do you see the research community getting together at the moment um to be honest the, developing the app is not a big deal it's really quick it's not that it's not that hard there, there are, i don't see a problem with having multiple apps around the real the real issues uh, is is uh, getting the data in a secure way so you don't invade people's privacy too much you don't put people off using the app and then having the tools to analyze that data so we can do the modeling and the contact tracing and in future the allowing people out who've tested you know clear or have antibodies or whatever so then um that's all going to be, and those, you know, those apps will probably have to have certificates of, you know, effectively like certificates of vaccination. But the analytics behind the scenes, the machine learning on the data, we actually have very good coordination. I'm on a couple of, um, of, of, of channels on Slack that are actually global channels for people sharing tools and systems for analyzing COVID-19 data uh, and the repositories of the data uh, uh, that are um, not, breaching privacy law are, are you know, available for multiple countries. So, so I think that's more crucial that we, we get an understanding. And we, we actually need to spot, I mean, I'm, I am absolutely not a public health expert, nor am I a virologist, immunologist, epidemiologist. However, um, I've seen things from the virology folks that, you know, we have a rate of mutation of the, you know, the COVID-19. And there are now, I think, four different branches of it in different parts of the world. And at some point, you know, it may get less virulent, and that will be good. That's what usually happens in plagues, uh, but it might get worse. And we really need to kind of have a very early warning of that. That would be, you know, if it sort of heads in the direction of SARS or MERS, then the mortality goes through the roof, and that's really, you know, would need more serious, well, the only solution there is to do you know, sort of full-on back to lockdown everyone uh, and biohazard suits for anyone who goes out, which would be pretty pretty scary. Um, so, um, so there, but that that kind of um, global observing what's going on is already happening in other ways. So, there's a couple of projects in the Turing which have been measuring things like uh, the movement of people around the country and air quality, and there's a link between air quality and people's health. And, and it, there may even be a link to uh, the spread of, of COVID-19. But even if there isn't, there's a, there's a link to people's susceptibility. And it's, in fact, obviously, uh, low air quality impacts on people's respiratory you know, well-being. And that's if, it, if, if you have a lot of air pollution, this is not good for something which is a respiratory disease. So this is kind of known to be a factor. Um, so we have work you know, immediately using the observatories across the UK, and I know people in China doing the same thing, uh, to, to look at you know, what that impact is. So we can take the coarse-grained data about the epidemic and takes relatively coarse-grained data about air quality and see what the impact is. And, you know, the air quality is actually rapidly improving because of so few vehicles and very, very few planes. Uh, there's, there's links back from that to, you know, an encouraging story about the environment as well in the sort of bigger picture, longer term. Right, right. So there's a, 
a lot of moving parts there. I mean, air quality, yeah, linking it back to the environmental uh, impacts um, and, and considering all different uh, aspects of how the, the illness might spread um, and the mutation rate as well. That, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I kind of assumed, you know, now that I'm sort of data scientist, I mean, I have, I have a, a background in bioinformatics and biology. And I haven't really looked at this into this much at the moment, but presumably a lot of the world's um, bio labs are stopping working on whatever they're normally working on at the moment and diverting resources to this. Um, and clearly we can see that in, in our space, in the world of data science, that this is occurring as well. I mean, do you, do you anticipate that this is something that's sustainable? Let's say um, the, the pandemic lasts and, you know, three months or six months or however long it lasts um is it going to be feasible for a large portion of the world's scientists to just uh, divert their resources and work effort to to have just like a, a large global coordinated effort on this i think that that is the case i mean for example the uh, folks in the sanger in cambridge contacted the turing to see if there were any ways we could work with them and that's you know that was the human genome project that happened there and that's a global project and you know so uh, so or immediately that gets links across the planet uh, i know some people in paris that are, that, that are looking at you know sort of gene sequencing uh, the virus as it moves through people because uh, as was used in uh, Pacific Northwest in the U.S. when they had their first case, they were able to work out that it had been around a lot longer than they'd realized because that case could not have come directly from somebody in China. It must have gone through somebody else because of the number of mutation steps. It's sort of like a, I'm not a geneticist, but I think it's like an edit, you know, the edit distance gives you a rough indication of how far you are. Um, uh, if you think of it sort of computer science terms. Um, so I think there's been quite a lot of joined up thinking in that community. I think it's, you know, gene, the sort of genetic sort of folks have the equipment for this fast sequencing nowadays, but they don't have you know, millions of boxes that do it. So I think it's a bit like a lot of big science where there's a relatively small numbers of labs. They may be very big labs, but then relatively small numbers of them. So they all know each other. <laughs> it's like the high energy physicists or the particle physics and astronomy. You know, they're, they're, they, when they put in research proposals for funding, they've all pre-agreed exactly what they're going to be working on with their hundreds of millions of pounds worth of equipment for the next few years. Um, so you know, they have a, a good coordination story there it's a lot more difficult in the public health side you know where you're really having to react operationally um and i i think um you know we were as we were talking about earlier sort of sharing uh the the measurement data from the propagation of the epidemic you know where we, the epidemiologists want that out you know early but it's it's relatively noisy data and difficult to establish precisely you know, i was saying about human contact measurement using bluetooth radio but that's a proxy for whether you know, somebody was infected or not it, it's just a gives you a clue but there's a feedback loop between that and actually seeing that person infected or not infected because they or they may be infected with no symptoms and infect somebody else so you have to infer that they're part of the chain um you know so this is all um uh, very different that's sort of very large scale but very noisy and human level data is very different than people getting uh, you know a bunch of blood samples and getting them to the sanger or somewhere where they can uh, science the hell out of it basically right right i guess as you said earlier um it could be more useful once we reach a point where perhaps um, a country is coming out of an isolation period 
um, to keep track of um, any new outbreaks in particular areas. Um, that would be an especially useful uh, use for that kind of data. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I when I talked to the NHSX, that seemed to resonate with them and other folks I know building apps of think of it in those terms. Yeah. Um, John, I, sorry, uh, fascinating uh, insight. Obviously, I'm not a data scientist, um, and so I don't have the same scientific background. But I just want to um, take you back to um, an app that you worked on um, back in 2011. I know that you wrote a post on the Turing blog about this, um, and you mentioned that you'd had several different research um, teams contact you um, since then. How has that work developed in, in the last couple of weeks, or even in the last week? Uh, you know, time is a bit weird at the moment but yeah how, how has it developed um so pretty much what we've been talking about is the conversation i've been having with multiple people around the world uh so it started about two weeks ago with the nhsx folks called us up and said okay that flu phone thing's very interesting we want to build an app exactly like that what are the short what are the problems so i mm -hmm. went through the way it's much easier to write apps these days so this yeah. is the the crucial thing is the development. John, can you, can you just tell us about um, Fluphone itself? Um, wh when was that developed and um, what was that intended to do? So that, that, was, that was intended to track people during uh, H1M1 uh, yeah. and actually use Bluetooth radios and self-reported symptoms, which is very much like a King's College uh, uh, and St. Uh, Thomas and Guy's Hospital app that's just come out. Um, and, uh, and it, we used it, and we did, it, it revealed a couple of parameters of that epidemic, it was the influenza, it was the flu epidemic, but there was a, a, a large component of the graph, in, and in graph terms, you just draw, literally draw the picture of the person who's infected and another person they've met who's infected, and we found all these people who, di who didn't ever say they were infected, but were on the path from one person to another. So what we discovered is that the large component of the graph was actually asymptomatic carriers. And that was, you know, that was 11 years ago. So that just showed that a tool could reveal a factor. One of the things that was non-technical about it was we had to go through a medical ethics committee and they didn't let us uh, uh, ship the app for children. They said uh, children wouldn't understand the privacy in the app. And that was quite ironic because as far as I'm concerned, 10 years ago, kids understood privacy and computing technology much better than adults. Um, so whereas nowadays, I think most people understand that. And after we did that project, the flu phone project, we, um, we actually talked to epidemiologists and public health people. And they said, it's really good. Now we think we understand this and we can persuade the ethicists that as long as you do the privacy very carefully, it's all good. And you could include, you know, all, all members of the population, which you probably need to do right now um, for uh, COVID-19. I think that seems like fairly obvious uh, uh, and, and more important, in fact. So so that that app came out of uh, it was actually funded by uh, the UKRI um, uh, to work with uh, people in uh, in public health and, uh, you know, medics from NHS uh hospitals so so it was a practical thing um but then you know when once we finished that we kind of let it we went okay that's the end of that piece of research and now it's all come around again and people are saying oh that app looks like the right kind of thing and mm. unfortunately 11 year old code for a phone that's not running you know a current version of android or or I ios yeah. it's not the, not a thing you want to look at you know but luckily you don't need to because you can just start again from you know programming the thing from nothing in a few days. I mean, really, one person can code that up quickly, um, and also all the tools for 
logging things securely are much better. Um, so we have a good ideas about how you know to maintain data encrypted at storage and in transmission so you don't uh, accidentally give it to the wrong people and you have things like role-based access control in the national health so when you put this data into database securely inside the health service you know that only even even in the health service not everyone can see it only people who've got authorization so and then we also know techniques for anonymizing the records in the data so even they don't know who this particular person is but they may be able to trigger warnings to other people who they still don't know who they are but they can get messages to them so they can effectively alert people they may have met this infected person without even knowing who that person is and then of course when it maps back to somebody coming in that person might come in with their phone and they go oh it's okay you can look at my record now you know because you're my doctor so you're treating me so there's a whole cycle of how it all links together, which I think we have a much a better, clearer view of how to how to join all the data. That kind of workflow, though, is still not fully something we know how to deploy in the operational NHS. Yeah. I think the uh, you know there's some countries who have small populations like Estonia or Iceland, which can probably do this um, and have very homogeneous kind of population and health systems. Uh, you know, the UK has uh, more people working for the NHS than the population of Estonia or, or Iceland. Actually, it's about six times the population of Iceland. Wow. Um, so you know, just the employees <laughs> of the NHS is like a, a comp- and, and it's all old systems, you know. Yeah. There's only five or six hospitals that are fully digital in terms of operational working. So if you want to join up somebody's phone with the results of a test and then link that back to contacting people anonymously so you tell them they might need to come in now, or you might need to tell them, oh, you know, their tests are all clear and they're all good to go back to work or whatever. Um, you know, that, all that joining those pieces up is, is something that's difficult and challenging to do. And, you know, we thought about all this like back in the flu phone days, but we still need to think about it all. It's a kind of logistical nightmare, really. So are you are you still, um, so are you now developing flu phone further um, in in terms of COVID-19, which countries have you heard from or which people, who have you been working with to develop um, it and sort of mobilise it in terms of the pandemic? The, um, I've spoken to people from Australia, New Zealand, some Central European countries, uh, the NHS X folks from the UK. Uh, I can't remember how many others. I mean, several other uh, countries uh, who are basically doing what we recommended uh, in terms of rewriting it from scratch, but also there are there are local considerations of how they interface to uh, their own you know, health informatics systems, how they support their local languages. You know, mm-hmm. that's thing, simple thing people forget. You know, if you want a consent form for people to sign up for using the app, uh, you, you have to have that in you know every language for the country you're in. And you know, right, of course, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> That's about 30 languages in Europe. Um, It's about 30 languages in India alone. So, Mm -hmm. you know, so each each place has to at least do that, uh, find some group who will translate the interface, which is um, actually about as much work as writing the code. It's interesting as well what you said about sort of the unique challenges based on the country and whatever the health system and the technology that that health system is able to use is like. Um, And you mentioned Estonia. I, I know that Estonia is one of the most sort of uh, digitally advanced countries and they've got you know everyone's got their um, unique um, ID system that's all online in their their health system so I, I'm guessing that 
countries like that which um have or you know tech so heavily integrated into their health system already really are at a, an advantage at the moment um, i imagine this is true for singapore and for south korea as well and um, what do you think like going forward like the lessons we can learn from this pandemic are with regard to how technology is adopted in the healthcare system in the uk so i think that the uk the nhs is is in good shape despite you know it's it's, it's complexity it is federating data more and more uh, more and more hospitals are going full digital we have one exceptional uk weird thing which is we don't have a single id system uh, and it's very hard to get people you don't need a single id system uh for health for, for healthcare to look up your tax record Whereas, you know, Estonia, they have a single, you know, citizen ID, which which covers all the different systems. But we don't need that. You have, as long as you have a unique NHS number, that would work. Um, so, you know, you can have a, a kind of world-specific or domain-specific ID system. And in fact, you know, when you have your, your tax return, you have the national insurance number, that is a unique ID for tax. It's not necessary to link them all together. Um, so, so we have digital infrastructures that are, are getting there. But the problem, as I said, with the UK is that, you know, we had a lot of legacy in the system, and that's that's a long, um, you know, it's a long climb to get out of the legacy and upgrade. Um, in particular, you know, doctors, nurses want to do their job, and they don't want to spend ten percent of the, the week, you know, learning a new IT system. So you have to be sensitive to sort of take. It's almost a generational thing. Um, uh, so they're not they're not any any more resistant to digital technology at all if it does the job, you know. So so imaging, you know, medical imaging has been a thing for a very long time. It's been extremely successful, uh, and and sharing images between hospitals and GPs and specialists is a, is been a done deal. Um, and you know, so that the, gradually these things are coming together. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to be a while. And then then you know, if we come up with these um, apps that want to use your NHS uh, number or a hash of it in some secure fashion um, uh, or use your the IMEI of your phone or, or some other number, uh, maybe want to join it to other things, then we have to be cautious about the, the UK's rather unique uh, uh, resistance to having single ID for everything. You know, every time the government tried to introduce ID cards, there are massive campaigns against it, whereas every other country in Europe, you know, you have to carry an ID card or some equivalent. So it's kind of a, an odd feature of this country. It's interesting you say that because I'm working on a project at the moment at the Alan Turing Institute where we're working in collaboration with um, a sort of an open source um, uh, ID system that's sort of based on um, one that the Indian government used. Um, it's early days at the moment, but the, the developers developing this new open source uh, thing formerly worked on the Indian one. Um, and yeah, there's... There's a, there are all sorts of um, privacy and security concerns, of, of course, but but it's interesting to note that yeah that, that our country is <laughs> is uh, unusual in, in in that it hasn't even attempted to adopt that, or that there's been such pushback against it so far. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say I feel as if that's in part because perhaps we haven't we haven't had anybody explain to us exactly why it's crucial i think there are often civil liberties concerns so there are concerns about monitoring and and those are valid concerns but i'm not sure that people would object if they understood how it, it might actually help them 
Um, I, I don't know if either of you would agree Especially with in that. crisis situations. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think we can all accept that we've, we're about three weeks into the um, into the current situation or well, actually I've lost track of time but I, it feels like it's about it's been about three weeks we've been it's been it's, about three it's, years hasn't it <laughs> it's actually been about three decades about about how long we've been alive um but yeah it it, it does feel like it things have developed very rapidly and with each and every passing day I think we're all finding ourselves thinking in, about the way that we live and our approach to things in a much more different way. And perhaps one of the things that is going to emerge at the other, um, on the other side of this is that we may now have to have, a, collectively, we may now have to have a, a conversation about how it is that we can mobilize ourselves, or how we can arm ourselves to ensure that we're not vulnerable in these ways. And if if ID cards is, is one of them, then perhaps we need to understand or there needs to be a bit more of an effort to explain why it is that this is important. Yeah, so there are a lot of alternatives to having a government-issued ID card where the government has that information about you. There, there are Germans have a, a, a digital ID system uh, and the Estonian system where most of the data is held by the individual, not by the people that issue the card. And in fact, the German system, as far as I understand it, the government merely vouches that the card is not um, a counterfeit. So all they're doing is assuring you, and they deal with the revocation of cards. Uh, we were just looking at it this morning in a meeting with a couple of the guys working. I think this is the same project as the Gates Foundation. That, um, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, so there are a range of solutions. And I think, but I think, yeah, you still, whatever you do, you have to explain it to the public. Um, I agree. And transparency was one of the things I have a problem with these tracking um, uh, efforts. Uh, you know, the, even the South Korean one, which was super successful, involved tracking without telling the public they were doing it until after the event. And the South Korean, um, the I think he's the prime minister there, was on TV and explaining what they'd done. And, and his, his ratings have apparently gone huge through the roof because he did so well. People were like, OK, well, we can see you balanced that about right. You didn't go for the full China surveillance but you did stop the epidemic as pretty much as fast as anyone could be expected so that's an interesting balance i think you know we'll see um at the end of this you know how what's being done here how well that fit you know on that spectrum and then that will as exactly as you say when you get to the end of this we'll be having a big think about a, a bunch of things you know the environment including reliability of the food supply chains for example um so there are people talking about provenance tracking of medical uh, supplies and food supplies, because when some of those dry up, uh, then you source them from funny places. So a bunch of tests that were shipped to, I think Italy recently from China, uh, trying to help, turn out to not work. So this is like, well, or they didn't work according to European spec. Yeah, I heard that, yeah. yes. And it's yeah. a bit, it, it wasn't any evil, but it was simply, I think the Chinese were using some older tests, which were only 30% accurate, which was fine for them in a disastrous situation, but, but you want something that's more accurate than that, you know, at this stage or where, wherever. So, it, is 30% fine in a disaster situation? That sounds, that sounds I mean, too well, if, useful. I feel as if it, it was a response. It, it, it must have happened very, very quickly, and that was what they had available, and so that's what they made available. Is that what you're saying, John? Yeah, and I think also you think about the social response. If you do 30% positive tests, but actually 70% of your people you test positive weren't, but you lock them up. I mean, you, you isolate them, you quarantine them. Mm. In China, that's okay. Yeah. That may be okay. Whereas if, if, you know, if two-thirds of the time you're, you're isolating people, they were completely okay, that's not okay here. 
And so I don't think, um, also, I think if we had that many cases, it would be okay here, actually. So it's a kind of, you know, how or if the mortality rate proves to be higher and so on and so on. So in any, any case, my point was that the, another piece of the picture is, is tracking the supply chain. And people said, we really need to have some kind of really reliable distributive provenance for things that arrive. So we know what they are, what do they really do? You know, were they medical equipment tested to this level? And we could do that with other resources like energy. You know, if we're buying energy, you want to know it's clean energy, we could buy it from a, a, a source. But if that source actually was shipping its electricity from you know, over a thousand kilometers away from some other part of, of Europe, uh, over, you know, these high voltage DC lines can go several thousand kilometers. So we have a lot of electricity we buy from under the Channel Tunnel from France. Um, do we know that's coming from nuclear? Do, can we choose? So could you have provenance associated with virtual goods and physical goods and medical goods and maybe food? You know, when the trucks can't drive from Italy, so we can't get enough wine and we start to get, you know, Chilean wine, um, uh, are we okay with that? Um, personally, I'm fine with it. But, you know, somebody might be going, oh, this isn't county. I expected my county at this point. <laughs> um, so, and, you know, and you may think that you know, at this moment, that's sort of trying to be light and humorous. Um, I mean, it should always be, actually. But but the, uh, the, the, you know, provenance and quality of goods is also part of environment control. And digital environment is sort of ma- mapping that well is going to be part of making sustainable digital systems support a sustainable world. Okay, so I feel like this is maybe a good uh, time to ask um, in that case. Do you have any predictions for the, the, you know, if you could say two things are absolutely going to change off the back of this, any predictions for how, uh, what those are going to be and what that might look like in a few months when hopefully all of this is over? Uh, if we can get at the data... Um, and it's looking like you know we are getting at some good data. We can get a better data, and we can show that if we can help rapid response. And I'm talking about you know in in the next few weeks, but also slightly longer term, and then longer term still. Then that will change government thinking and policy thinking about how you include data scientists in 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 helping. So if we if we if, as long as we don't get in the way of the public health and the doctors and nurses operate you know actually operationally dealing with things, but we can improve those operations in different timescales, um, which I, I'm pretty certain we can. Then this will, you know, it was, will open many many uh, doors to that kind of process uh, and make it you know just sort of part of every, every more everyday life rather than ex- exceptional opportunities. Uh, um, it's clear, you know, when we when we talk about it with people uh, that are data scientists or or are aware, you know, that, that science communicators uh, that, that most be, and, and a lot of the public get it, and in fact, a lot of the public are asking, you know, they can see these graphs that people are drawing, comparing countries, comparing the rate of spread, comparing the effectiveness of interventions, looking at their they're making their own inferences, and they're often right. You know, you just see in public social media, so mm-hmm. people are going to be saying, okay, well, how about that's just that should just be part of everyday life. It should just be how you do things. You can do things on a 24-hour timescale instead of a 24-month timescale. And, you know, when you when you make your intervention, you know, how about it happened in January the 2nd rather than halfway through March? So you think data is going to have a real moment off the back of this? If we don't mess up, um, we, we, we need to be professional. That's really, yeah. really important with this. It's uh, You can mess up, you can write sloppy papers, and you know, get things published that people forget about uh, if they're just a, a, you know about some I don't know 
uh, analyzing uh, humor on Twitter or something. Uh, it's not the end of the world. Uh, but in you know in this situation, you know we we need to be super serious, which is why people are they're they're rushing in to say we can help, but they're also rushing in very carefully uh, to make sure that we can. We're not picking the wrong thing. So there are quite a few things we could look at. Uh, some of them will be later. Some of them we won't be able to do later because there wasn't the data, and we'll be able to say that. And some of them we can do now. We've already talked about things that are already happening, uh, and then that will I think change the landscape quite a bit. Okay. Um, so um, in my everyday conversations, obviously, um, as I said, I'm not a data scientist. And so I'm, I myself am certainly a lot more interested in data and beginning to see how much more crucial it is. I think off the back of this, there are going to be a lot of people who um, might look at you know, altering their own sort of career traje- trajectory to ensure that um, they're incorporating a data analysis and data science into their everyday work. What would you say to those people? What would, what would your um, recommendation be for how they can best educate themselves and, and build a, a world that is uh, more data literate? I think that, yeah, data science uh, is really this combination of uh, a reasonable level of understanding of statistics and and things like inferencing uh, and a reasonable understanding of what can be done with computers. We, we are actually in the Turing democratizing a lot of tools and, you know, the research engineering folks in the Turing have, have had a large part to play in that, which is fantastic. And that will make it easier for people coming in. There've been, uh, you know, trailblazers, but I was uh, in the house of commons giving evidence to a uh, science committee about data journalism a few years back and there were folks from the guardian uh, newspaper who were, were early entrants into visualizing you know doing these infographics but yeah. behind their infographics were very sophisticated uh, data data you know and analytics and um and they taught themselves they, they got often taught themselves of course if, if you come from um uh, a, a background that does analysis you, you could you could even be somebody who does very nuanced analysis of a historian for example a friend of mine has been looking at the epidemic parameters and explaining them to people very very well because he's able to take very subtle evidence from history very difficult to interpret and and then figure out what you know infer what was happening in 500 years ago or whatever um so there's no reason not to not to go there uh, and as we make these software tools you know more uh, easy to 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 fire up on reasonable amounts of data then people will start to take this into their own hands a lot more uh, and we already see that even even during the pandemic we're seeing a lot of uh, data journalists particularly the more respectable uh, channels are, are generating you know very good ways to understand what's going on um, you know without uh, a PhD in you know computer science and AI, uh, which is great. You know that's sort of the second or third generation of, of the people that did their masters or PhD in computing and statistics, and now you know built tools that other people can incorporate. Uh, so we're, we're getting there, but I think um, I think there's still room to have a lot more people because there are there are new problems and subtle problems in understanding and, and the edges towards facing towards human behaviour. Uh, it's super complicated uh, and you know that that sort of social uh, sciences integrated with data science is, is really really difficult and there are also some uh, uh, security privacy confidentiality and also some scaling problems just a very large amount of data if you want to have real-time understanding of what's going on you know super quick response you know that would be uh, something that's just on the edge of what we can do I do think that um, you know going back to your points about the, the increasing sort of uh, data literacy of not just 
the general public for journalism. Uh, I have sort of seen seen that trend myself as well. It does seem like something that that looks set to continue. I, I mean, there's there's a real appetite for, I think, understanding the trends that we see in the world now, and especially at times like this when you sort of know that um, in order to really understand what's going on, that you need to have some scientific understanding uh, and you do need to be able to also filter, you know, what, what, what news sources are giving you reliable information. There's what, I know that there is some talk of misinformation around uh, COVID-19 as with any um, sort of world event at the moment, that's always an issue. But the hopefully, I think we we will see an an increasing uh, sort of level of um, an increasing standard of of uh, of uh, data literacy in in journalism. I mean, I mean, my own sense, and I know it's it's how it, pe- people do live in their own social media bubbles. But what I see on social media is that when journalists are not data literate and they say stupid things they get called out very quickly nowadays um and it doesn't bode well for their careers or the uh, respectability of their um, newspaper or yeah or their publication exactly mm. um so so we'll, we'll see how that continues and um and certainly people who who are found to be spreading misinformation about in, in crisis times like this whether intentionally or, or unintentionally just through bad data literacy especially if they're a major publication are they're not going to they're not going to fare well coming out the other end because they will lose public support i think i mean i, I would hope that 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 was the case but we also um to my mind seem to be emerging from um just off the back of a time where not that long ago really just a year or two ago um there seemed to be a lot of skepticism over uh, around facts um and you know the whole thing about fake news and really querying whether or not um you know whether or not scientific fact can be taken as uh, can be taken as just that um I hope that one of the things that does change off the back of this crisis is that we begin to see people um, want to see more evidence-based um, conclusions. And I hope that we can see less, um, you know, less incidents of things, uh, you know, things like that. But I, I'm not utterly convinced that this will be enough. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being sceptical. But yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, and we had people, um, uh, this is the, we're recording the day after um, everyone in the country went outside their doors to clap for the NHS. So yeah. may, maybe if scientists do come up with vaccine quickly and and that the the, uh, the, the um, do manage to, to to halt the spread of this uh, disease, then um, then we'll be getting a clap as well. Or I say we. I'm, I'm not personally. <laughs> Um, I will personally I will personally (laughs) send a video giving you a round of applause but yes (laughs) yeah I actually uh, yesterday I was uh, I was out on the street clapping along with a lot of people and then my Mm. phone buzzed and two of my kids who in totally you know down in uh, uh, in Richmond and Shepherd's Bush they Mm. posting videos of their streets and it was nice, but then there was somebody in Germany who posted the thing saying you know the way we applaud our health service is by funding them properly. 
school yeah <laughs> uh, I mean a valid Salty. point and hopefully I, I I think you know as I said and I really I personally have spent the last few days really thinking about how life is going to change afterwards I, I think you can't help but do that and I really hope that one of the things that changes um, is that we begin to see a higher level of investment but I also hope that people perhaps get a bit more of an understanding of just how nuanced and complex our systems are um, it's all well and good and we should we should absolutely applaud our frontline NHS and healthcare staff and we should absolutely um, you know, be pushing a society for a society that understands how important they are um, but what about um, all of the researchers for example what about the people who are doing the everyday work um, that isn't immediately obvious um, for provide um, that provides answers um, that, that eventually lead to these huge developments that have, you know, have taken place over the last let's say 100 years or so we've really kind of grown as as humanity's grown we've advanced so much more we understand so much more about the things that are dangerous to us in terms of our everyday lives but also we understand so much more about the world around us um, and so that's I for one that's what I would like to see but yeah so recognition from scientists yes <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, John, um, I guess, um, you know, it's been fascinating talking to you. I would really like to know, though, how has your work, what does your work look like now that you're sort of working remotely? Are you finding it challenging in any way or is it really just migrating your everyday uh, sort of strategies to home life? And uh, yeah, how have you been handling that? Uh well, you know, the, I've been working like this since I, I, I started like 40 years ago working on the mm. internet. And so a lot of the people we work with were at, at UCLA and Berkeley and MIT. And I was in London at UCL uh, for 10, for 20 years. Mm. And so we were on, you won't believe it, we were on video and audio back then uh, on the internet. Um, and, uh, you know, we had, we, this is how I work um, a large part of the time. The thing I miss is the end of work socializing with colleagues a bit and you know mm. some of the colleagues are you know I, I get on with all of them but some of them are also close friends you know people you know mm. uh, that I um and and I sort of miss out on you know the, the human contacting but that's not a that's not to do with ways of working for me um yeah. that you know that is that's sort of just ways of living uh, it's kind of work-life balance and that's a real that's gonna be a real issue um but I'm you know I'm fine at the moment um uh, I should say yeah. that our, te- our team has a, a virtual coffee break going uh, daily or, or twice daily, actually, at the moment. Mm. So, so I haven't ours. participated in it. Oh, um, it does. Oh, well, there yeah. you go. I, yeah. I, have, I have multiple. So I have one with uh, uh, some cheering people at 7.40 in the morning. We all have coffee. Mm. Um, and then this evening, we have three pub virtual pubs. Oh, wow. Uh, which, I mean, it's, have you got yeah. the beer stocks in? Have you, have you managed to, to get I, it? I have, I have wine. I'm trying to, the thing is, I'm not cycling every day. So I need to do, normally I cycle <laughs> to do beer offsetting. And so I need to reduce the carbs. And the way to do that, switch from beer to wine. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. That's a very good strategy indeed. Um, all right, John, I think on that note, uh, we'll, we'll call it a day. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Um, and I think, yeah, as the, uh, the situation unfolds hopefully um people will be able to enjoy the uh, and uh, the podcast and and find the information we've discussed today useful um is there anything you'd um is there anywhere people can uh, reach you online oh well i mean they can use my Turing email it's fine okay and are you on twitter um any social media uh, yeah i'm on twitter um you take my last name backwards is my twitter handle 
Okay, I'm not even going to attempt to do that very quickly. Uh, um, if you just search, you'll find me. I mean, okay. I tweet as search John Crowcroft in Twitter, and, and you'll find him. There yeah. you go. So, um, so you're at Croft Crow. Uh, no, it's it's literally backwards. It's Footwalk. Ah, okay, that's so much. That's brilliant. I love that. Um, okay, and um, any you know, in in terms of obviously your work is available on the Turing website. Um, you know, if are you open to uh, people reaching out to you to collaborate and work at the moment, or are you, is your plate rather full at the moment? No, no, I'm I'm totally open. Uh, um, I have uh, right now. It's university vacation. Uh, so my day job in Cambridge, and I have a number of students, I'm supervising final year undergrad projects and some PhD students, but it's a little bit lighter at the moment because uh, I don't have any classes to teach. Obviously, some of the Turing interactions, are, some of them slowed down. I don't know if you found this, but some people have added more meetings than they would normally physically ever have, <laughs> uh, which is a little bit weird. So having more Zoom sessions than you'd have real meetings uh, yeah. is a little, you know, it'd be nice to kind of know, let's not have a meeting for the next seven hours so we can do something. Uh, <laughs> uh, would be okay. But I'm fine with people contacting me. It's absolutely okay. I mean, if, you know, if I have to give a minimal answer, I'll say, look, you know, come back in a week as a minimal answer. Absolutely. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for all the work that you do and have done in the past. Um, and thank you for being a leader. <laughs> no, that's fine. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. To learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute, visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk. Music for this episode was provided by Jamin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstree, Tarek Allen, Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. <laughs>